the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a very pleasant Thursday to you. Seventh day of January, one full week into the new year of 20. 21 and what an amazing week it has already been shameful in many respects we break down the numbers of what's transpired in the last day in america four dead 60 arrested though that number could go higher 50 police officers injured 36 hours before the violence was soundly denounced and one failed putsch. Good to have you with us again on this edition of Lifeline. It is, I think, painful for all of us to try and reason through um, the unreasonableness of it all. And um, we're going to spend some time in tonight's program talking about where we go from here. Also later on in the program, we'll be joined by psychologist and best-selling author Dr. Greg Jantz to talk a bit about uh, that sense of unsettledness that we are all feeling. We are all still in the midst of a significant pandemic, which by the last official tally, and let me just pull it up real quick here, the last official tally has, wow, 373,000 Americans dead. I suppose even as the vaccine rolls out, that number could climb to as many as a half million Americans before it's all said and done. And against the backdrop of all of the unsettledness of COVID's impact on the economy, many still out of work, many still wondering how they're going to make it from day to day, where the rent is coming from, how they're going to keep food on the table. We're also looking at, quite frankly, historic events in Washington, D.C. that have in some respects shaken our democracy to the core, in other respects proven its resiliency, although you would hope that we have, wouldn't have to go through trying times like this, but trying times indeed they are. Joyce Cordy joins us. Joyce is, of course, a author. She is the creator of Reimagine America, for many years uh, hosted a uh, daily radio broadcast or weekly radio broadcast, and you can get her musings at <coughs> pardon me, reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. And Joyce, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us this evening. First, let me just get your reaction to the events of the last 36 hours. Uh, uh, to be sure, um, I, I think even the most... Um, uh, ardent conservative could look at this and say that a little bit of the shine of American exceptionalism was rubbed off yesterday, if not indeed a whole lot. I think that's very, very true. If you were watching the uh, renewed Senate debate last night, um, uh, Senator Warner um, actually took out his phone, which is a broke rule on the floor, uh, to show what was the the uh, headline and the front page story on in in Germany and in France yesterday, and that was of course the scene in the uh, House chamber after the rioters broke in. Um, and so, you know, I I do believe we have a road to travel to restore the world's faith in American democracy. 
And perhaps that many Americans feel the same. I mean, to be sure, historically, and one of the things that has made this country so rich and so unique is that we've always found a way to peacefully settle our differences, even if that meant grinning and bearing it for the next uh, election cycle, be it two years or four years away. Our guy didn't win. We're not happy with the policies of the governor, the mayor, whatever. We always know that there's going to be some form of redress later on down the road, even if it comes in the form of an impeachment or comes in the form of a recall election, as our own governor here in California may be uh, facing potentially the same fate of Gray Davis as of many years ago. Uh, Yesterday was a major departure from that normal American decorum of settling our differences peacefully. There's also a sense, as you allude to, of perhaps giving tremendous comfort to our enemies. You've got to believe that champagne bottles must have been cracked open in Beijing, that high fives were taking place in the Kremlin Uh, watching this unraveling of American democracy. And I guess, too, uh, for me, watching this unfold was not only unsettling because of the manner in which these individuals chose to try and settle differences in relationship to the outcome of last November's election, but the other thing, too, that I found shocking, Joyce, is I would have thought in a post-9-11 environment that the Capitol building, like the White House, would be a virtual fortress that in a moment's notice we could protect our members of Congress um, from the possibility of an insurrection, be it from foreign powers or even maybe from our own people. But clearly yesterday, the level of vulnerability was shocking. I mean, you'll have a more difficult time, apparently, getting a pair of fingernail clippers through a TSA at the local airport than you'd ever experienced trying to bring an AK-47 into the uh, into the rotunda. Well, that's, yes. And, and I will tell you, I was in the Capitol building the morning that Steve Scalise was shot. And I will tell you the reaction that morning, the lockdown, the and and the authority with which that building was locked down was diametrically opposed to what happened yesterday. So to begin with, we need a thorough investigation because it appears that either the police felt so overwhelmed that they stepped out of the way or that there was help from inside. And, And that would be shocking. But to see people like Representative Crow from Colorado, who was a, a battalion commander in Fallujah, the guy's a Marine officer, crawling on the floor with, you know, protecting an older member of Congress to get them out off the floor of Congress is a sight I would never in my life have imagined seeing. Uh, Crawling up the flagpole to take down the American flag and put up the Trump flag for the first time well, I will disagree with you just a tiny bit that we've always solved our differences peacefully. For the first time ever, ever, a Confederate flag was flown inside the Capitol Rotunda of the United States of America. I mean, at that moment, I was, I mean, you know me well. I'm not speechless very often, but I, I never in my life thought I would see something like that. And I can only imagine how frightened those people were, because I know what it was like that day when I was in the Capitol in a a meeting and Scalise was, you know, was shot and they locked everything down. And we all were really frightened because we didn't know what was happening. And these people were surrounded by by a, a mob that was armed. How did that happen, Craig? There's a need for a really thorough investigation. Yeah, the the big question of how it got that far, that out of hand, that quickly. I mean, to to gather in Washington, D.C., to protest, to make speeches uh, there on the Mall or from uh, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, uh, all well and good. And one of the hallmarks of American democracy has been the ability to exercise our free speech, to voice our grievances, and find some form of redress. And I understand that there are many in this country that feel as if things did not go 
appropriately on election night. I understand that there are many questions still unanswered pertaining to the outcome of the election and how it was conducted. We also know that typically our form of redress, if we, if we can't have a reasonable debate um, within the halls of Congress or the mayor's office or in the state legislature, we have redress through the court system. And in this case, the court system, uh, you know, basically sounded off on the grievances on more than 60 different occasions, including two times in which the highest court in the land said, there's nothing here for us to address. And where normally, historically, we would say, okay, we don't like it, we don't agree, but we'll get our comeuppance in two years or four years. This time, something was fundamentally different, and, and, I, and I think the disturbing aspect of this is, in addition to the notion of much of the behavior of those rioters yesterday giving aid and comfort to the enemies of this nation, but also that renewed sense of not only have we gone from being uncertain of the surety of our uh, the outcome of our elections, but now we've added to that uncertainty as to whether or not our government is capable of protecting our nation, let alone we see the challenges that they have in protecting themselves, meaning within the halls of Congress. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, will, I will make one small caveat. When you looked at the first polls, um, you know, when, when Pennsylvania was still was first called and you saw all these people happily out in the streets all over the East Coast, uh, because we were freezing up here that day, um, more than 70 percent of people, you know, so that's the majority who voted for uh, Biden and, and a, more than half of the people who voted for Trump said it was a free and fair election. It took weeks of consistent lies and uh, crazy, you know, shenanigans in court, et cetera, um, for that to erode in terms of, I know I have some very good friends who, you know, who texted me and said, was it stolen? And the answer is no. They counted. And then they recounted all the votes. And, you know, I'm a reasonably technical person. Let me tell you, you couldn't, the, the logical um, uh, ability uh, of a Dominion machine would not allow it to make the kinds of changes that, that are being attributed to it. It doesn't have that, that software capability. It, it's like a very fast adding machine. Well, um, and even if it did, and for, so, as, a, and as so, a point yeah, of order here, even if it had that capability, once the hand recalls took place... Now the machines are taken out of the equation and the ballots are gone over one by one by one manually so that we've gone from the original uh, machine count on election night to then a post-election night recount. And in the case of Pennsylvania, a second post-election recount. That essentially now we've counted them three times and there's no significant change in the numbers then that says to me you need to find another methodology of redress. And unfortunately, as we saw yesterday, the president put his hopes in the vice president stepping in and just saying, that's it, we're not going to count them, we're going to use alternate electors and discount the electoral college vote, which unfortunately every constitutional expert that I've spoken to without exception said, Craig, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, it does not work that way. The Constitution says the states shall name the electors and based on the laws of the state, and every state chooses its electors based on the vote of the people. That's the 12th Amendment to the Constitution. And and so there is no, um, yes, there are instances. In every single election, somebody, you know, votes his newly deceased uh, mother's ballot, right? That happened. Um, but when they did the the signature match, they, they got 99% accuracy in the signature matches. I mean, I think the people who actually did the work in this biggest election in the history of the United States, both from a cybersecurity point of view and from us, the clerical and tedious work of opening ballots, comparing signatures, you know, flattening ballots, loading them into the tabulators, etc. 
people did a phenomenal job. And the initial response was very muted. And it took a month of this incitement to create, um, you know, a, 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 a serious amount of, of uh, concern about the validity. And then you add to it. You add to it the, 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 the work of senators who absolutely knew. I mean, Ted Cruz, whatever you love him or hate him, is a really smart man. Josh Hawley, whether you love him or hate him, is a really smart, well-educated man. But you, because you and I have been around the block once or twice, know there's a big difference between street smarts and intellectual smarts. Those people knew what they were doing, and it's so destructive of the, the people's trust. And the people elect their elected leaders to lead, to do what well, I think Romney what's most what, night, you know what Mitt Romney I, said last night. Tell what's that? The truth. You well, know? you know what, what what's what's particularly disturbing, I think, is the fact that knowing that there was an angry crowd waiting out front, and to take that course of action, not recognizing the the. The, and th this is what's important, because we, we so often focus, and rightfully so, on the importance of rule of law, which means respecting the Constitution, respecting the institutions. And again, there's always an opportunity for redress. And if you don't like the outcome this year, and you know how many of us in our voting life have said, I'm not happy with, with the person who got in? I, I see your hands. We always know, even if we have an extreme level of of discontent, there's an opportunity at redress later on down the road. This is the one time when which apparently that notion was completely ignored to the tremendous peril of the uh, the security of our democracy. And uh, and what's problematic about this, and again, and Joyce just touched on this, this isn't a debate as to whether or not there were inconsistencies in the election. Of course there were inconsistencies in the election. There are inconsistencies in virtually every election. How can you expect to tally upwards of 170 million votes in less than 24 hours and say, we made no mistakes when most of the people engaged in all of this are either uh, low-level poll workers or largely fellow citizens volunteering their time. Of course there will be mistakes, but if the evidence has been presented to the courts and the courts say we've looked at it, there's nothing here, next, at some point we have to accept the bitter pill and move on. And, and sadly yesterday, uh, that did not happen. And, you know, I think what it's done is it's created now an even greater sense of distrust, distrust that we have amongst ourselves and of the system. Well, if suddenly the very core of the system we've convinced ourselves cannot be trusted, then what are we suggesting here? That we wish to abandon the, the American experience and the American experiment, rather, and say, well, you know, it was a nice run. We made it almost 300 years, not quite, uh, but we're going to decide to call it quits. I mean, that's essentially what we're suggesting here. Joyce Cordy is with us. Joyce, of course, is the uh, founder and president of Reimagine America, information available on the web at reimagineamerica.org. Now, let me just quickly say this before we go to break. I understand that there are many, myself included, that are very disappointed with the outcome of the way things went down in November. But in the process of trying to correct mistakes or address grievances, we need to be cautious not to burn the whole place down, and we need to be cautious that we may have differences of opinion in terms of policies, procedure, governance, etc. But this is, in my mind, the first time ever that we've regarded each other as the enemy. And you know, if you've been a long-time listener to this program, you know that I have repeated quite often the similarities of the dangers of other great past nations 
uh, societies such as uh, the Roman Empire, the, the Greek Empire, even the old Soviet Union, not to suggest that they were great, but all of these long-reigning nations or empires, without exception, all ended up ultimately collapsing for one reason. Not because of a massive attack from an enemy from the outside that overwhelmed, was able to beat back the forces, destroy the military, and then get victory, but rather the enemy from within. What I am suggesting to you is we need to be very, very cautious to not start seeing each other as the enemy. Yes, we have differences of opinion. Yes, maybe our guy got in and we're thrilled for it, or our guy didn't get in and we're very disappointed for it. Yes, we have different approaches, perhaps, to a whole variety of issues from finance and infrastructure and taxation and education and, 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 and military buildup and international relations and on and on in that laundry list of what it means to, to operate a civil nation. But let's never forget the fact that while we have our differences, we are all still Americans. And yesterday somehow felt as if there were some who considered that unless you thought a certain way, you were no longer considered to be an American. You're no longer part of the same country. And that's not only dangerous thinking, but that's the kind of thinking that gives aid and comfort to our enemies and could very potentially lead to the absolute destruction of our nation. We have indeed met the enemy, and he is us. We'll be back with more comments from Joyce Cordy as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Joyce Cordy is with us, president and founder of Reimagine America. Information available on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Uh, Joyce, in our closing moments together here, I, I want to get your your comments on Rudy Giuliani. And I realize that it's easy to twist words, easy after the fact to um, uh, create inference when none was intended. But when Rudy Giuliani, earlier in the day, got up before that crowd and, and talked about trial by combat in relationship to uh, the push toward addressing the electoral college vote, is there any potential liability that he, as an officer of the court, may be facing in all of this? I suspect so. The acting uh, U.S. attorney for D.C. has announced that he intends to investigate it. But, you know, it, I mean, it's, it's just such a fall for Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, um, to have reached this point. It's just really difficult. I mean, the whole thing is is not something I, either of us would have ever imagined. But as we close this discussion, I do want to point to one thing. Um, you know me, I'm a perpetual optimist. We now have a 50-50 Senate. We have a five-seat majority in the United States uh, House of Representatives. We have elected the most centrist candidate um, in 15 years. Um, I think there is room in the middle. As somebody has said, the most important man in the U.S. Senate today is going to be Joe Manchin. And, and I do believe there is, in that closely divided Congress, with a legislator at the helm in the White House, I think there is an opportunity to, one, bring this COVID pandemic to an end, begin to restore the economy, grasp the, the 21st century economy of, you know, build in America, American ingenuity, climate um, modification through sensible centrist policy. You know, I think both 
in the, the lesson we should take away from this election is that the majority of us should not and do not listen to the extremes on either end. And that means more of us need to participate in primaries and really pay attention to who the candidates are. But we must insist that our leaders work for us and not for their own power base. Well, and, and that's a very valid point. And, and, and sadly for so long, and I, and I want to kind of conclude with this, with this observation, sadly for so long, there have been extremes. I think much of what you've seen playing out over not just the last uh, 48 hours, but over the last four years, if not longer, has been a sense of frustration that bubbled up to the surface. President Trump touched on a nerve, a raw nerve in this country, that that has brought people to the brink of a level of frustration. There has been so many efforts, particularly on the extreme ends, that have frustrated so many people that I think at the end of the day, uh, sadly, part of this is the result. And the the takeaway here is that our leaders need to start listening to us. I mean, California is a great example of this. The nonsense that goes on in Sacramento that is completely divorced of the average Californian is shocking. And the situation gets worse, seemingly, not just legislative session by legislative session, but virtually day by day, minute by minute. Our leaders, and you put it well, need to start listening to their constituents. We need to stop treating each other like the enemy, and we need to start listening to each other. Failure to do so means, sadly, I think, more of the same, more upset people, more anger spilling out into the streets, and the slow destruction of what many consider to be history's greatest nation. And so let, let's, let's be optimistic moving forward and do what we can to try to work together, hear each other out, and cooperate with each other. If we do that, I think we can recapture much of the greatness that has been part of our history and find that our best days are not behind us, but rather ahead. Joyce Cordy, I thank you so much for being with us tonight. Information on her website at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. 535, let's get you some traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, um, we're going to switch gears here because we can belabor that point uh, for hours, as many no doubt have. Um, but one thing to be sure, there are going to be lasting after effects, not only in terms of what we need to do to rebuild our sense of trust in the election system, our sense of uh, trust and faith in each other, the recognition that Democrats shouldn't consider Republicans enemies, Republicans shouldn't consider Democrats enemies. We're all Americans at the end of the day. But as part of that process of, of, of recovery, um, this has put a lot of people on edge. The backdrop of COVID-19 and its economic impact, coupled with that sense of a lack of safety as we see how vulnerable our democracy is, certainly how vulnerable our capital was, on display before the entire world yesterday um, creates a moment in time and space of high anxiety for many people. We've invited Dr. Greg Jans to join us to talk about uh, this very issue of how do we deal with post-election, current pandemic stress. Uh, we understand certainly that, that not only can these be huge threatens, threats to us, literally and physically, but the emotional turmoil is often a, a casualty here that we don't really recognize or acknowledge, sadly, oftentimes, until it's too late. 
Dr. Jantz has been honored as running the number one clinic in the United States for depression treatment. He is the author of more than 25 best-selling books on topics that range from addiction to depression, as I mentioned, to eating disorders. And Dr. Jantz is also the founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources, A Place of Hope. Dr. Jantz, always a privilege to have you with us. Well, thank you, and good to be with you. And boy, anxiety levels are high and maybe even higher, and we are seeing some, kind of in a way, some re-traumatization. No doubt about it. And, and, you know, I mean, there's always a sense of nervousness when an election is forthcoming and we're wondering if our people are going to get in and uh, what what the potential changes may look like. I mean, that, that that's kind of normal. And then we get through the other side and we're either uh, victorious uh, that our candidates or our issues have all gone our way or, or maybe uh, feeling a bit maudlin because they haven't. But typically we move on. I have to wonder if perhaps a part of the, the consternation that we're seeing take place here and the, the extreme degree of um, uh, political tension is not in large part the the outward development of the kind of stress that we as a nation, as a world, frankly, have been collectively feeling after the relentless pounding of COVID-19. I mean, I've got to imagine, uh, Dr. Jance, you look at numbers today, we're, we're approaching 350,000 Americans who have perished and, and many more than that globally. And these kinds of stressors, it's difficult to find a, a, a place of relief if it's all around us, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. It's all around us. And here's the key. It's been nonstop. So, you know, what are we since march here we are beginning a new year and really the anxiety and all the unknowns and then because uh, each day we wake up and there's like another significant uh trigger that can cause anxiety depression and so the word that that i'm feeling is that we are very weary emotionally people are worn out They've been, uh, I'll use the word confined, they've been confined or uh, quarantined and isolated. Addiction levels are up. It was depression being in the number one spot as far as what people were suffering. But that has been uh, surpassed by anxiety and anxiety disorder. We're seeing folks who are traveling to work on anxiety to be here with us. And, uh, you know, it's crossed the line over where they feel despair. The anxiety hits you physically. And the temptation for many people to perhaps self-medicate, um, I, I'm sure, is a strong one, and yet that can wind up exacerbating circumstances, can it not? Oh, absolutely. And it's a natural one, uh, the, the feeling that, okay, I'm so tired of how I'm, uh, what I'm feeling. It feels unbearable. It's constant. It's not going away. And so a person goes, well... You know, I'll, I'll just, I haven't drank for years, I'll have a little bit of alcohol. <laughs> and before you know it, that's your main source of changing your mood uh, or how you're feeling. It's a way of, to, to numb out or to self-medicate. Or So we're seeing alcohol consumption way up, uh, misuse of prescription drugs uh, uh, as well. There was a period of time that there were so many anxiety prescriptions being written we had a little bit of a supply chain uh, issue uh, about getting the medications. Now, how about that? You know, not, not surprising but disappointing, and I guess perhaps indicative of, of many of the challenges that we're facing right now. I mean, I, it, it, you and I have, have visited on the radio quite a number of times down through yeah. the years, and I suspect, Dr. Jance, if we were talking this time just a year ago, on the issue of anxiety, you might suggest that, well, somebody who's dealing with uncontrollable levels of anxiety, uh, it would be good to talk it out. Get involved maybe in a support group. Uh, don't isolate yourself. Uh, surround yourself with family and friends. Uh, get engaged in activities that can help be a distraction. Uh, go to counseling. I mean, there, there's, there's any multiplicity of things that can be done where we can find comfort, up to and including uh, being involved in maybe a prayer group attending church actively, things of this sort. 
But now, in 2021, so many of those traditional avenues where we could seek support, seek a little bit of a healthy relief valve, well, we've been deprived of. They tell us, don't gather in church. You're putting yourself at yeah. risk. If you're going to have a support group, you have to do it virtually. You can't do it uh, person to person. Don't hug each other. You might pass on COVID-19. So what what do people do? How do you advise your patients under these circumstances yeah. when so many of those traditional support avenues we've been deprived of? So here's what's happening is... Uh, it's created a barrier between people because now you know, okay, do I shake a hand? Do I hug? What's okay? What's not? And uh, all the social interaction rules, they've changed. And it's like, okay, so now that's created social anxiety. It's kind of like I was walking down the sidewalk here not long ago uh, outside and nobody around me, and I'm, I'm not wearing a mask. And uh, somebody way, way in front of me uh, was walking up the sidewalk. And suddenly they saw I wasn't wearing a mask. And I'm, I'm, we're way more than six feet away, you know. And so this person actually cut off the sidewalk and ran into a parked car because oh, of fear. Dear. So we have all this pent-up fear, and that goes somewhere, by the way. We store fear in our bodies physically. And it affects our thinking. And, you know, high levels of anxiety, people feel like, well, I, I don't feel that God loves me. It starts to create self-doubt. And so we end up uh, with so much self-doubt and then indecision. It's like, I can't seem to make a decision. And uh, then we don't know uh, what's safe, who's safe. Can I go outside? What can I do? <laughs> so all those what-ifs. Uh, so we're seeing... Uh, unfortunately, and uh, uh, it, it's this fear level in people's lives right now will have some physical ramifications. It cr over time creates inflammation in the body. Uh, it's going to set you up for digestive issues. We know that sleep, uh, sleep is uh, sleep issues have been now called an epidemic. We have so many people with sleep issues, so now it's fallen into a category of an epidemic. I want to take a quick time out here, but when we come back, Doctor, I, I want to talk about um, what the indicators are, what the warning signs are, and when people should actively seek out uh, professional help. And I know some people hear that and go, oh my goodness, you're thinking I'm going crazy? I'm not suggesting that. But I think oftentimes there is sort of a blurred line between what's a normal, natural reaction to the circumstances going on around us and when we start to move into that danger zone where our own sense of well-being, our own sense of safety and security suddenly comes at risk, and then how do we know what's normal, what's beginning to head us into a potential danger zone, and where do we go to find help? Dr. Greg Jantz is with us today. He is the author of a number of best-selling books, 25 all told, most recently on the top of anxiety, Seven Answers for Anxiety. It's through Rose Publishing, and you can order it online through the usual suspects, as well as through his organization, aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. We'll come back to more of our conversation here on this Thursday edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Uh, true confession time. When the initial outbreak of COVID-19 hit and we were all ordered to shelter in place, there were a few days of a sense of a bit of adventure, uh, working from home and uh, being able to come into the office in my fuzzy bunny slippers. <laughs> <laughs> There's a picture for you. You probably didn't want to see, um, and 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 it was kind of a kind of a welcome change of pace. And then the days turned into weeks, which has turned into months, and uh, here we sit once again under shelter-in-place orders throughout most of the state of California. And I have to confess that there have been plenty of times down through this where you start to get a little stir crazy. Uh, not quite Nixonian talking to the pictures on the walls, 
but almost. And I guess the big question as we visit today with best-selling author and the founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources, Dr. Greg Jantz, the big question, Dr. Jantz, is how do we know when we're starting to reach into that uh, that sort of danger zone. Certainly that sense of cabin fever that I felt, many of us felt, uh, is a normal reaction to kind of being cooped up at home and, and isolated from friends and family. But there there becomes a point when you can sort of drift into a more dangerous area. How do we know where, when that area is and when what we're feeling is just simply normal? And once we begin to hit that barrier... Where do we go to find help? Yes, and there is a barrier. If you look at anxiety on a continuum, um, it goes from mild to worse to worse, and, and really the end is despair. And so if you start to get in despair, your thinking's irrational, and you're, you think, well, I'd be better off if I wasn't even alive, or you're making rash and impulsive-type decisions. So here's what we know. You start to enter that red danger zone, uh, first of all, the longer that we've suffered from anxiety, and if we begin to use some self-destructive coping, like I mentioned, alcohol, drugs, uh, pornography, any, any escapism behavior, even spending could be one. So we've started to use those maladaptive, uh, you know, self-medication, and then that's no longer working, and we start to feel this uh, despair. That's a sign uh, that, boy, I, I need to get some help now. So those are there's a series of warning signs, and, you know, the light is flashing yellow before it turns red. Um, but people tend to wait too long to get help. Or they're watching, watching a family member suffer, and you're saying, you know, what do I do, what do I do? And, and they say, I don't, I'm, I'm fine, I don't need any help, and things get worse. So we see a lot of regret from people who, who really have waited too long. Mm. And, and I guess therein lies the real issue here, that we think, well, it's going to get better when it doesn't, or uh, somehow the sense of shame and embarrassment. Um, and there there is a little bit of that, that um, dark cloud, and unfortunately so, that dark cloud over the sense of, being able to reach out. And again, with so many of the traditional venues that have been denied us and avenues of being able to let off steam or, you know, go to church on a Sunday morning and get a sense of being renewed and refreshed and and, and maybe ask a, a pew mate to pray for you and having that renewed sense and confidence that God's going to work it all out. And we're, we're in many cases able to kind of deal with the ebb and flow of the challenges that's just part of normative life. But I guess the one first big admission here is we have to recognize that there's very little about this that resembles what we're used to in terms of normative life, is there? Exactly. Um, and your perceptions begin to get distorted. So think of anxiety in terms of a ticking time bomb. Uh, the longer we wait, kind of we can turn it in. It can have panic attacks. Uh, I remember working with a gentleman who, you know, he's driving down the middle of the freeway. His heart starts pounding. He breaks out in a sweat. His vision gets blurry. He gets his car over to the side of the road. He thinks he's having a heart attack. But what happened was he was having a panic attack. And a panic attack or an anxiety attack is when your body takes over. It's like, whoa, it just took over. <laughs> and so one of the things that we know is... Um, that our body can be retrained, but your body begins to cry out for help. There's another toll here that I think we should mention, and that is the toll that this can have on relationships. Oh, and, yeah. And we may not yeah. even recognize that we're, we're, we're taking our frustration out on our spouse or on our kids maybe being uh, very short when it comes to uh, interactions with co-workers, albeit perhaps working remotely. Uh, so there's a, there's a danger there too. And so then that brings us full circle uh, as we see the number of potential risks here by not acknowledging that we're kind of reaching the breaking point and then not knowing how or where to go about 
getting some help. Uh, what should people be thinking of when they they kind of have that self-talk and come to the conclusion, you know what, I'm I think I'm kind of I'm I'm kind of hitting the wall here. What should folks do? Well, one of the things is um, it's natural to isolate, but what I want you to do is is do the opposite. Uh, we need to be willing to uh, obviously reach out for help, find out what the options are for getting help. But remember, have two, maybe three people in your life that are really um, trusted. Uh, trusted friends, trusted advisors, uh, generally not family members, but have a, a couple people that you can be really honest with and you can pray with. Um, that's a, a point of reality. If we're full of anxiety, we start to lose touch with reality. And we do what I call quantum leap thinking. You go from a what if to a complete disaster. And that's what anxiety does in our thinking. We make huge leaps in our thinking. And so have somebody that can, in your life that's going to give you feedback, tell you the truth. Have somebody in your life that um, really is uh, there for you, not in a codependent way, but in a healthy truth-telling way. And maybe that can also be a, a good gauge. Um, if a friend, a loved one... Um, helps us to to kind of sort out where we stand and how we're feeling uh maybe listening to a little bit of their input and counsel as to well you know what you're feeling is quite normal and uh you know talking about it can be a a, a tremendous source of relief up to the potentiality of a loved one saying you know friend spouse family member um I'm, I'm recognizing that you are really struggling this and perhaps taking things to a, a level where you get some input from a professional counselor might help you manage through this. I mean, these are trying times. And again, I think to, to acknowledge the fact that all of us are struggling to varying degrees. If we say that we're not, we're probably lying to ourselves. Yeah, right, um, right. And, and, and that there's nothing to be embarrassed by by saying, you know, I'm I'm having a difficult time. And, you know, what, there's something that really is um, wonderful that happens when we start to tell ourselves the truth. And it's like, yeah, um, I'm not doing well, and I'm, I'm feeling these waves of anxiety just hit me. And, and, and this being truthful, because the anxiety is, well, it's kind of shameful. It's like I should be able to handle this. And, and we tend to isolate more, and we tend not to really uh, say much about it. Um, and we're embarrassed by anxiety. So, uh, and I think the other out. challenge let's too is that the, exactly. I think that the other challenge too, doctors, that oftentimes we're we're sort of dismissive of it, or we get frustrated because some well-meaning people will say, "Well, you shouldn't feel that way." Well, <laughs> that may be, but I am feeling that way. Uh, and and sometimes we look at this as some sort of a defect. There's some significant shortcoming. What's going on that I can't control my thoughts? Uh, there, there's a dynamic of this that's certainly very spiritual oriented. There's a dynamic that is environmentally oriented. Certainly, being cooped up in the same house, you know, 24 hours a day after a while uh, would would uh, would cast a toll on any of us. And then when it's the constant barrage, and you and I have talked about this even in the early onset of COVID-19, where it would be constantly consumed by the news channels and what's going on and reading posts on the internet and listening to the news and all of this negative information that's just constantly barraging us uh, virtually without ceasing, um, that all can be extremely destructive. So bringing us full circle to, the, to one of the key questions here, reaching out uh, is certainly a critically important thing to do. And if you need some advice or, or maybe a little bit of, um, of some insights in terms of working through the process, I've mentioned one of your books, um, but are any others that, that you have that you would recommend that for a person that's struggling with anxiety related to all of what we're going through right now, which of your books would you best recommend? Well, um, I did a real small, simple book called Seven Answers for Anxiety, and that's because uh, if you're anxious, you need simple, quick information. And that's what that is. But um, 
the book Healing Depression for Life, which is a larger book that talks about also anxiety, but Healing Depression for Life uh, is, is a book that, because anxiety and depression live together. So it's a foundational resource that um, may lead you in, in some directions to really discover what what's going on and what's the core issues I need to address. And I like the notion that, you know, while we talk about this, and certainly our conversation tonight has been in the context of the short-term impact of the outcome of the election, of uh, what's happening with COVID, uh, there may be others that struggle with this at varying degrees to a greater percentile and have done so for years and suddenly find out, well, doctor, this is not a new discovery for me. It's just gotten significantly worse. And so being able to address these issues with a sense of of a long-term solution, Healing Depression for Life, as the book title suggests, might be um, an even broader, deeper, more profound path to begin uh, taking on the effort of dealing with all of this. And again, know that you're not alone. Know that there are resources available out there to help you. Um, I want to mention again Dr. Jantz's website, aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. Dot com, And I suppose there are some doctor who are so severe on the edge that maybe they have even entertained or struggled with thoughts of self-injury. Um, that's where you really need to get serious and reach out and, and talk to somebody uh, immediately, don't you? Yes. And don't want, here's the thing. Don't let fear stop you because fear can paralyze you. Uh, people who have regret are usually because they they didn't take that step of getting help. Information again available on the web, aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. The book, Healing Depression for Life, also available through the website. And forgive me, doctor, give me the title once again of the short seven-step book. Yeah, a a great resource really is Healing Depression for Life, which covers uh, anxiety. And Healing Depression for Life is a good place to begin to get to some of the core issues. And again, that's available through Dr. Jantz's website at aplaceofhope.com or through the usual suspects, including amazon.com. Our thanks to Dr. Greg Jantz, author of a number of best-selling books and, of course, as we mentioned, the founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources. All right, we're a bit past six. Let's quickly get you caught up on some traffic.